On the 26th of November 2020, the Bar of Ireland held its annual Human Rights Award ceremony. This award is made in recognition of outstanding contributions in the field of human rights. This year, the Council focused on health as a fundamental human right. The 2020 award was presented to Dr. Michael Ryan, Executive Director of the World Health Organization's Health Emergencies Programme. Dr. Ryan was chosen in recognition of his role in leading the international response to the COVID-19 pandemic. In advance of the award ceremony, the Bar of Ireland held a press briefing, chaired by Sinead McGovern, where Dr. Ryan responded to questions from journalists. The chair of the Bar of Ireland, Maura McNally, introduces. I'd like to extend a particular welcome to Dr. Ryan, and we're at delighted to acknowledge the work of Dr. Ryan and delighted that he's accepting the award from our Human Rights Committee. As you're all aware, Dr. Ryan is the Executive Director of the World Health Organization's Health Emergency Programme and he has been leading the team responsible for the WHO endeavours of tackling COVID-19 and we are very appreciative of all of the work that he has been doing and all of the advices they have been giving to us um, I welcome that on a personal level as well, and it's it's obviously has been and must have been an uphill struggle. Um, we're also delighted to facilitate this uh, press briefing this morning, and thank you all for coming. And I'd also like to acknowledge the very responsible way in which the press has been affecting its coverage of the pandemic and its negative influence on our society and on our day-to-day -day living. Um, it can't have been easy for you either uh, trying to report on the pandemic and its effects on every person in this in this country. Um, but thankfully, we've had a balanced uh, view and interpretation by the press of the advices that have been given to us by Dr. Ryan and other medical advisors uh, during this pandemic. And on a personal note, um, when I first uh, was introduced to Dr. Ryan about five minutes ago, I'm also delighted to see that a graduate of UCG, a fellow graduate of UCG, is the recipient of our Human Rights Award. And as Dr. Ryan pointed out, the fact that I call it UCG indicates a certain vintage. Um, but on that note, I would just like to say welcome to everybody and thank you, Dr. Ryan. Thank you. Th th thank you so much for that very warm introduction. And uh, uh... Uh, uh, I must say I'm uh, I, I'm really uh, I'm humbled uh, I'm humbled by this uh, acknowledgement, uh, but uh, I too uh, I, I do struggle to accept any uh, any credit for for any achievements I may have had. Uh, I come from a hugely supportive family. I've had a wonderful education in Ireland and huge opportunities to to influence the the, the lives of others and. Uh, I've been surrounded through my whole life, and particularly in my humanitarian and emergency work with a massively diverse group of people, men, women, people of all ethnicities, who've had a singular objective in their lives, which is to bring uh, uh, bring the benefits of health, uh, but bring the solidarity of witness uh, to the struggles that people have, particularly in vulnerable situations and in emergency situations. Uh, around the world. Most of all, I've learned from the communities that we serve, uh, some of the bravest, most courageous people who bear their suffering with huge dignity. Uh, and it is not our duty or our, uh, for us to serve them. It is our deep privilege to serve those people. 
Uh, we as a nation in Ireland have suffered our own catastrophes in the past. Uh, and we have learned uh, even, I remember reading the story recently of the, the American Indian population who sent their funds to Ireland at the time of the famine. It is never the, it's never the large gestures. It is bearing witness and standing with those who fight for their rights, standing with those who suffer uh, and giving of our expertise uh, and knowledge to them. So I, I would accept this award today on behalf of those that we serve and on behalf of those that we serve with. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. Ryan, for those comments. Um, okay, so we'll, we'll head into the questions and answers now. And thank you everybody for keeping your mute on. And when you're not asking a question, it helps the quality of the line. And um, so I'm gonna take you one by one. And then as you ask your question, just a reminder to please unmute um, and introduce yourself and ask your question. Um, so I think we're going to go to first to Niall Delaney from Ocean FM. Niall, are you there? Yes, I am, Sinead. Thank you. You can hear me okay? Yes, perfect. Thanks, Niall. All right. Okay, Mike, I just want to say uh, well done on your award and a very good morning to you. Um, the, the, the question is in this part of the country is, uh, are you a Mayo man or you're a Sligo man? The, uh, the, the rivalry is more is more intense uh, than a Connacht uh, championship game between the two sides, and, and I know where your your former teacher in uh, your former principal in, in Charlestown uh, described you as his own Google in the classroom uh, many years ago, and when he indicated uh, during leaving cert, when he asked what you wanted to do, you said you intended to study medicine, and he asked you why, and you said. Sir, I just want to do medicine, even if even if I have to work for nothing. Uh, and I'm sure Bill Gates would have been uh, delighted to hear to hear that. I, I'm just wondering where that thirst for knowledge came from such a young age, uh, Mike. And and what was it that fascinated you, you so much about medicine? Um, thank you for the question. Yeah, the uh, the Mayo Sligo thing has become quite the thing. Uh, um, and I have allegiances and, and roots in, 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 in both counties, both proud counties. My, my dad is, was from Tubbercurry in County Sligo, my mum from Charlestown in County Mayo. I have family in Westport, I have family all over the place in, in the two. But as my friends tell me, I played my football in Sligo. So that's, that, that, that seems to be the, the determination of citizenry in the, in the West. Uh, but I have, uh, I have, and my mum lives within 50 metres of the border in Balahi, just between Charleston and, 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 and Curry. So uh, really, I, I am someone who's lived in that sense uh, on the edges. And, uh, and I seem to always uh, be drawn to go to the periphery to go to the places beyond. Uh, and I think that's always been part of uh, my life. My, my dad was a merchant seaman for, for most of his life. So I grew up on stories of Singapore and Sydney and Honolulu and uh, photographs and postcards. And uh, so my life was always lived in that sort of uh, uh, fantasy of, of the world. Uh, my, uh, my uncle in America, got a subscription from my grandmother and grandfather for National Geographic in the 60s. And I remember going every month, you know, rushing down to their house to be able to go and sit in their front room and read the latest edition of the National Geographic and everything from the moon landings to everything else. So I've been fascinated with uh, with science, uh, not just medicine for, for, for a very long time, um, but, uh, uh, but also keenly aware of inequity and keenly aware of how society 
uh, is structured in a way that mitigates against the good of the all. Uh, I was raised, uh, my dad died when I was young uh, and my mum uh, had to raise three boys in the west of Ireland, a very conservative place on her own in the 1970s and the struggles of women in Ireland to, to be equal and to be seen as equal and treated as equal in Irish society uh, were very apparent to me from a very young age. The, the way I played a lot of my football with uh, good friends who were travellers and I saw the struggles that they had in being accepted in society. And they could stand shoulder to shoulder on the field with me uh, and we could fight together for our parish uh, but never fully accepted as members of our community. So it's not the big things, uh, you know, uh, that that matter. It's those little things that shape your view on the world and your your, your view of fairness uh, and what you need to do to make it fair. It's easy to stand on the sidelines. I often talk about the Something Must Be Done Club. Uh, the Something Must Be Done Club is the largest club in the world. Uh, the We're Going To Do Something About It Club is a much smaller club. Uh, and uh, we need to we need to have many more people in. We're going to do something about it, club. We, we face huge inequities on this planet, be they gender, uh, be they race, be they economic, uh, and we're not going to fix it with you know single binary solutions, good versus bad. Uh, There's a complex task we have, but we face existential crises at every level in our society, but not without the hope <clears throat> in the goodness. Uh, in the goodness of uh, in the goodness of people, and just finally on that, uh, the man you speak about is uh, Austin Egan, who was my science teacher uh, in 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 that secondary school, and in a you know a rural west of Ireland secondary school where everyone was just trying to get by, and as they say, get the leaving and get on without a great expectation of everyone rolling into college, uh, rolling into university. I do remember at the time, uh, honors maths was on the cards, I think there were three or four of us doing it. And uh, in fifth year, it was canceled because a teacher left and Austin had, was put to teach more science classes. And he was told he can't teach on his maths anymore. And there were there were two people in that class, uh, two of the four of us. Uh, one was James McIntyre, who has been Irish ambassador all over the world lately, most lately in Argentina, and now back in Dublin and myself. And Austin couldn't do the teaching continue officially with teaching us maths. So he, he got a friend of his in a national school to give him a classroom at the weekend. And he taught us on his maths by himself in his own time um, and allowed us to pursue our interest in maths. So part of the reason maybe why James is doing what he's doing and I'm doing what I'm doing is uh, someone said something must be done. <laughs> Not something must be done. They said, I'm going to do something about this. And, uh, and I think that probably reflects the true nature of why people achieve. Everyone in their lives has someone or a number of people who at particular moments open a door, uh, offer them help and push them on to what they can become. And I'm just I'm just one of those people, nothing special, just a, a young lad from wherever I'm from in Mayo or Sligo, but from Curry County Sligo, uh, who's managed to have some wonderful people uh, along my life path who've helped me to do what I'm doing right now. Okay. You, you handled that one very diplomatically, uh, Dr. Ryan. Uh, thank you for that. Um, okay, so next um, we'll take George Lee from RTE. George? Hello, Dr. Ryan, and congratulations on your uh, award. Um, can I just bring you to the, the subject, which I suppose is the dominant one of the day, which is the COVID-19. And uh, we're facing into a period here, um, Christmas, 
And as you know, this virus loves Christmas. It loves social interactions. We've seen here ourselves how uh, last week we heard from our own uh, National Public Health Emergency Team that a very marginal increase in social contacts, very marginal, had stopped the uh, uh, gains that we were making in terms of reducing our incidence rate for a whole week, a very, very marginal one. So Christmas and the relaxation, which all governments are uh, in this part of the world certainly are under a consideration at the moment are considering doing is a big consider is a big worry and i'm just wondering would you have a view in relation to how people might approach this uh, and what is your view i suppose in relation to the idea that um, governments including the irish government may be relaxing um, restrictions at a time when the case uh, incidence and the force of the virus in our countries is a little bit higher than what they would like uh, i wonder what your view is on that uh, thanks, George. Um, you know, look, it's it's uh, we all face this in our lives. It's it, it, these are a series of trade-offs and and genuine dilemmas, for which there are there are no correct scientific answers. And I do like your your allusion there to a game of margins. It is a game of margins, and marginal activity in one direction or the other can change the course of any event. It doesn't matter if that's a, a pandemic or a football match. The fact is that decisions you make on your tactics affect the outcome or affect uh, how much you win or how badly you lose. Uh, and that is something I think that NFET, uh, Tony Houlihan and Roland Lynn and, and, and the government, uh, you know, obviously are, 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 are taking extremely seriously. Uh, and I think there's a genuine desire to offer people the hope of a celebration at Christmas um, and ensure that people have the opportunity to, to celebrate that uh, to the extent possible with, 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 with family. Uh, but recognizing that uh, uh, movement and, and, and large gatherings in themselves, larger gatherings, can drive transmission. And we do know that household transmission is a major factor, because once you deal with community transmission in terms of separating people from each other, uh, you then have a situation where the majority of your infections come from households. And infections in households, secondary transmission in households, is highly dependent on the number of individuals in that household, the duration they spend there, and the level of their physical contact <clears throat> or otherwise with each other. Uh, and in that sense, instead of dealing with large gatherings and taking the risk out of the large gatherings, which is on the face of it more straightforward, how do we take the risk out of the small gatherings, the small family situations? How does everybody be careful? How do people find a way to reduce the risk to themselves and others? And that comes down to very clear advice from the government on how that can be done. And then a very calibrated uh, set of measures that, uh, that uh, society can agree on, because this is a contract. This has to be agreed between society and government. What does society want? What is the best for society right now? What level of control is required on the virus versus the desire to be together and share a very important celebration? Uh, and that that requires a dialogue and a discussion. There are no binary uh, solutions here, George, uh, and there are genuine trade-offs and dilemmas. But we have seen in the past that when restrictions um, um, are lifted, we see very often <clears throat> disease jumping back up. And the question then becomes, how good is the testing, the contact tracing, and the quarantining for, for contacts? Have the other systems stood up? Are they there and, and able to deal with what will come after any, it doesn't matter if an opening occurs before Christmas, after Christmas, it doesn't matter when. 
when the when occurs, there will be a natural jump because once people start to mix again, the disease numbers may start to rise. The question is, what happens then? Do we go back into another wave of disease or do we have a more Asian outcome where we have much better control at the low level and we can maintain that control over time uh, until the point of which large numbers of people uh, get vaccinated? So um, I, I don't envy the government in Ireland their decision. I don't envy the Irish people the effort that it's taken twice to crush the curve on this. And I say the people of Ireland have crushed this curve with the support of government and others. And I'd like to commend people at home. People in Ireland have been done really well. And Ireland was the first country in Europe, to my knowledge, to, 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 to bend this curve this time around, very clearly. Uh, and people need, people and, 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 and the scientists and the government deserve some credit for that. Uh, and I do think though, the dialogue around what happens for Christmas, I won't comment on it because I am not fully briefed on the, on the situation and the dilemmas that exist. But I, I will say there are no easy answers for that. Uh, and that has to be a, a, an open discussion between government and communities. Okay, thank you for that, Dr. Ryan. Um, next, we'll take a question from Zara King, Virgin Media. Zara? Hi, Dr. Ryan, congratulations on your award. Um, just to kind of follow up on that, I know you were saying that you won't comment because you're not briefed on the situation in Ireland, but I suppose just in terms of giving people maybe some advice and I know you mentioned there things like uh, proximity time spent together the amount of people in a house I mean what are the other sort of practical tips that people can take on board they might have uh, people coming from other parts of the country to stay overnight at the home now for Christmas I mean is it things like using separate bathrooms is there any sort of practical hands-on advice that we can give families who are, are going to be together albeit perhaps in smaller groups but together nonetheless this Christmas um yeah, and there, there are lots of things, and I'm sure that advice is out there, but you're right. It really is about uh, proximity and duration and location. Uh, and if you imagine, in a sense, I'll try and use the, an analogy here that, that may work. If you, if you manage, imagine uh, the idea of saturation, the idea of how a sponge absorbs water. If, if you leave a sponge in water for a long time, it absorbs all that water, so it gets saturated with that. If you imagine yourself as someone who can become saturated with the virus, then the longer you're in contact with someone who may have the virus, uh, the closer you are to that person, the more chance it is that you reach a point of exposure where that virus can cause infection. It's not one virus necessarily that causes infection. You probably need to be exposed to multiple viruses over the duration, short duration of time. Um, and, and in that sense, uh, what we want to do, each individual has to be in a situation to say, what is my risk? Uh, and in some sense, do your own risk calculator and say, OK, what risks can I absorb <laughs> during the next few weeks that keep me below a certain level uh, so I don't reach a point at any time where, where, where I'm exposed uh, to a significant dose of this virus? And can I manage that within my life? This is particularly true if you're someone uh, in the older age groups or someone with underlying conditions. Uh, those individuals have a much worse outcome if they get infected. And it's really, really important that those individuals who are aware of those risks and know how to reduce their own risk or their own exposure to others. But it's also important that the younger people and others in those situations understand their responsibilities to reduce those risks to those older individuals or those with underlying, uh, underlying conditions. And it comes back to what you said exactly. It's about uh, if, I'm a, if I'm a student and I've come home for Christmas or whatever the celebration is, and I've been mixing with lots of young people in an area where the virus is, 
then I really, really need to think about my <clears throat> how, where I sleep, uh, where I go to the bathroom, uh, you know, uh, should I be in this small kitchen helping mum prepare the Christmas dinner <clears throat> or should I be doing, you know, what all young people would prefer to be doing, going out for a walk and not participating in the in the process. So can we be in a situation, imagine a house as an environment where uh, where various activities happen. So we're in a in a in a household day over over a holiday period. Where are the where are the pinch points when everyone's in bed and sleeping soundly? Everything is good. So. Where are the moments during the day where people come together and spend significant time in the same space uh, within the household? And can then we find a way of reducing that risk and saying, okay, look, there's only two people in this kitchen at any one time. So the, the, the other 15 of you, please get out of here, right? Uh, you know, maybe you can maybe you can peel the potatoes and, and, and the carrots, uh, you know, in another room while someone prepares food in the kitchen. I, I'm sorry to be simplistic, but these are the small choices we make. And as George said before, the game of margins. What are the margins here for for exposure? Uh, <clears throat> so maybe rather than <clears throat> all sitting around after the dinner, uh, you know, twelve people in the room all watching the same TV with the windows closed, you know, maybe uh, you know people go out for a walk. Maybe people get outside and and have that discussion in a different environment. So uh, I know these aren't great answers, but they're the realities of how you can reduce your risk. And in reality, if you have a highly, highly vulnerable person in the house and you're coming from a place where you think you might be exposed, uh, you know, there are other options, you know, wearing a mask yourself. If you believe I could be, I'm not infected, but I could be a risk to my to my my parent or I could be a risk to my brother or sister who who has a, a physical disability and, and has an underlying condition, then maybe I should take the you know, I should wear the mask and I should wash my hands three times an hour. And I should be very careful that I am the potential person that could bring this disease into this house. That doesn't make you a bad person, but it makes you a person that needs to be more responsible and more conscious of the risk you might be bringing into the household. And if everybody just looks at their behavior and how they can minimize their risk to others, then I believe we can de-risk the whole situation uh, in, in that setting. And, uh, and I think it's the small things and, 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 and people are smart. People are really smart. People manage risks all the time, every day. Every time you cross the road, you take a calculated risk. Should I go to the traffic light and press the button or will I just nip across here? And those risks are mediated by how late am I for the meeting or my kids are standing outside the school and I'm not there. And we always, as human beings, we are designed as risk managers. Our whole survival as a species was based on our capacity to judge whether, you know, that's that mammoth or that deer was too big for us to handle. What is the risk of us being successful in the hunt versus the risk of being killed in the hunt and leaving our family destitute? We are designed to manage risk as human beings. We just need to give people information, clear information on how they can manage the risks. And I have great trust that people can do that. And I've seen a real turn in the attitudes, particularly of youth. And I think young people have shown great leadership. I think we've seen the, the house party thing fade away as people recognize the risks and people are taking responsibility. Sorry for the long answer, but uh, I think it's a very important question and one which everyone needs to sit down in the next coming days and weeks and ask themselves, how can I make the risks lower for myself and everybody else? Um, next, we'll take then a question from um, Shane. Shane Phelan in the Irish Independent. You there, Shane? Yeah, I'm here now. Can you hear me? Hi, Shane. Yes, thanks. 
Okay. Um, uh, Dr. Ryan, congratulations on your uh, award. Um, I'm just wondering, um, how concerned would you be at the, um, the situation that's prevailing with, uh, I suppose, two different approaches being taken on both sides of the border? And um, uh, would you have worries uh, that that will have an impact, I suppose, uh, in and around the Christmas period? Uh, thanks, Shane. I, I, it's, it's very difficult for me to comment on, on something as specific as that. I'm making the assumption that uh, the authorities on both sides are taking the appropriate steps to minimise risk uh, on both sides uh, of the border. And as people will and do mix across the border, the same rules apply, as I spoke about previously. Um, if you're visiting family on one side or other side, uh, the same rules apply to your responsibilities to 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 reduce the risk. But uh, the 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 issue is that. The, the border in Ireland, uh, such as it is, is is a very important uh, point where people can be with family. There's a huge economic link between the two sides uh, of uh, the two parts. And uh, obviously there's a need for that continued uh, sort of economy to, to, to continue. And we, we, we don't want to put unnecessary, I wouldn't imagine, put unnecessary restrictions on people. But it would be the same in the, in, in, in the South if you've got two counties with very different uh, intensity of transmission, if you go from a county with very high transmission and you go to a county with very low transmission, you're potentially bringing that risk from one place to the other. So in that sense, it's not necessarily about a border per se. It's about going from high to low risk areas and how people are aware if they're going from a high risk area to a lower risk area that they're potentially bringing that higher risk with them and they have to modulate their behavior accordingly. Uh, and that's for both sides, uh, on both sides of the equation. But I'm, I'm, I'm sure that the uh, health authorities in, in, in the north are, are working very closely with, with those in the south uh, on trying to align their, 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 their activities. But again, I'm, I'm not privileged to the, to the exact details of the situation. Okay, thank you, Dr. Ryan. Um, Colin Pina, The Irish Times. Yeah, hi, thanks very much. I just wanted to ask you if you could, if it's possible briefly to give us your view on uh, as I understand it, Europe generally is not doing as well as some countries in Southeast Asia. Which is, could you give us a, a view? I mean, are, are we making some fundamental mistakes in, in how we're de approaching this uh, crisis? Uh, how long have you got? Uh, that's, that's a that's a big question for which there are partial answers, but not complete answers. First of all, I would say that uh, in Europe, and certainly in the European Union part of of the continent, the numbers have have clearly turned there, there's been a drop in incidence in the last number of days and probably reflects the the increased vigilance over the last couple of weeks the, the numbers of deaths haven't dropped or hospitalizations yet but we see that turn in the numbers so the, the measures that have been put in place are, are, are certainly beginning to work and, and obviously we need to continue to drive those numbers down with regard to a comparison of the asian environment versus the um the uh, european environment um, you know, this really runs into uh, the ethos uh, around individuals versus communities uh, in general. But it's not it's not always the same. You've seen success in containment activities in places as diverse as uh, Singapore, uh, Republic of Korea, in, in, in China, uh, in, in Australia, in New Zealand. These are all very different socio-cultural contexts with different mixtures, ethnic, different cultural expectations. But they've all, to an extent, and Thailand, you could add Vietnam, Cambodia, and others. 
they've all managed to uh, attain uh, a, quite a degree of control over the virus. Uh, not complete, uh, and you'll see in the last number of days, the Republic of Korea and Japan have experienced uh, a jump in cases. Um, so it's not without its problems. I think the essence uh, in, in, in the Asian environment in general as two factors, I think, have uh, helped. One is they managed in the first phase to get the virus down to exceptionally low levels of transmission. In other words, below a critical level of transmission. And then they've managed to follow through and ensure that those low levels are maintained. And they have jumped very hard. Every time the numbers have jumped up, they've really jumped on those numbers. Not necessarily through uh, physical lockdowns, but very targeted measures. Very, very, very extensive case investigation, contact tracing, cluster investigation, investigating all their clusters to identify where the risks of transmission. Every country has had different points where amplifications have occurred. Uh, Republic of Korea had real issues with some uh, conservative religious communities. Japan had issues in nightclubs. Korea then had issues in its nightclubs uh, and other places. Uh, and uh, I think those countries have been very much in a learning mode, constantly investigating their amplifications, constantly investigating their clusters, seeing what are the factors in our society that are driving transmission. And the factors in each society that have been driving transmission have been different, uh, and they've been different at different times in the epidemic for each of those countries. But that ability to have real-time data on where the disease is, understand the transmission dynamics and who's transmitting. In Japan, for example, some of, and this has been borne out in other countries, only about 20% of people uh, transmit disease onwards in these clusters, but 80% of people are dead ends. 20% of people seem to be the ones who pass the disease on. Who are those people? What are their behaviors? Where are they doing that? What is the context in which that transmission is occurring? Because most transmission results in a dead end. Only a small proportion of people will then further transmit the disease. So it's not a guarantee that everyone transmits. So we need to learn more. And I think there's been much more of a, an approach to trying to, to learn those lessons in real time with very, very localized, empowered investigation teams, public health teams really out there doing that. Um, the second thing is uh, much more, I think, to do with the social contract. And, you know, some you know people say, well, that's because of the China model. You can't compare China to Korea or Korea to Australia or Australia to Thailand. They're very different social contracts in, in, in all of those settings. But I would say in general, there's a very high level of, uh, I use the word advisedly, trust in government advice. People tend to listen to what the government is saying and they tend to have a very strong sense of social responsibility. People in general in, in Asia, and it's a huge generalizations, see their own rights and responsibilities, but they also recognize very clearly the rights and the responsibilities of community. Uh, and these are probably balanced in a way that allows uh, measures like physical distancing, mask wearing, and other things to have higher levels of compliance. Uh, and that is not to say that in Europe or in North America that we should cast away the freedom of the individual. It's really important that we maintain uh, the principles that have have allowed democracy and other things to flourish, the right to individual determination, the right to, 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 to speak and move as one wants. These are hard-won rights over many centuries, uh, and therefore they, we have to be very careful. But we also have to have a conversation around balancing individual rights 
with the rights of the community and individual responsibilities and the responsibilities of the community. Uh, and maybe if we are, are and, and I think the same issues arise when it comes to climate change and other existential threats. Uh, what is the the one, my view of the world and my my right to be and do what I want versus we as a community and what we have a right to do and a responsibility to protect. And I think that's a, another issue uh, that's driving that. The other thing I would say that's driving both the government's um, uh, very aggressive approach and the community's compliance is many countries in Asia have a strong cultural memory of epidemics. Uh, and uh, certainly the, the the H5N1 SARS was very much in, you know, very much centered in Southeast Asia. We had the H5N1 avian flu and other things. And many communities in those situations went through those pandemics and the culling of animals and many other things. Um, and that is uh, that is also driving compliance. People have that memory and they know that these things are important. Contagion in an Asian context is a much more frightening word than it seems to be in the West. Uh, and, I, and I don't know how to explain that, but uh, that is that is the case. And finally, I would say community orientation. If you look at the Thailand, look at Vietnam, Cambodia, in, in, in China and, 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 and Korea and other places, very, very active at community level. Public health services and others are decentralized down to community level. A lot more community health workers, a lot more community action, a lot more engagement with local communities to solve the problems at the local side, less siloed less centralized approaches in terms of dealing with the problem. Centralized strategy, uh, centralized resource management, but decentralized action and giving local actors and local public health teams the tactical freedom to react to what they see rather than a purely centralized approach that becomes very siloed very quickly. And I, I'm speculating here, I'm, I'm giving you my views, they're personal in terms of what I'm observing and they're not absolute. There are, there are exceptions to all of that, both in the West and in the East. But I think there are significant learnings we can do from observing, in general, what's happened in both settings. Thank you, Dr. Ryan. Um, next, uh, we'll take a question from Porik Horan, the examiner. Uh, good morning, Dr. Ryan. Um, congratulations uh, on your award and uh, thank you for your service on behalf of, uh, of the population. Uh, Dr. Ryan, uh, in your esteemed opinion, um, given uh, that you have lived, as you said, you mentioned, uh, you know, uh, pandemics like H1N1, MERS, SARS, etc. Um, when can we um, legitimately expect as a society to get back to where we were in perhaps December 2019, life as we know it as such? And uh, the, the assurances around vaccines, um, there seems to be a kind of a, a misinterpretation um, among the general population that, oh, is this rushed? Um, you know, uh, can we trust, you know, a vaccine to come out uh, this far? Even someone like myself who was looking into it didn't even realize that perhaps that vaccines usually can take five to 10 years because of, of apathy, etc. Whereas you have a concerted effort like uh, like like all companies uh, like AstraZeneca and Pfizer, etc. Um, and governments uh, combining uh, for this one. Is, is that something that um, you could assure people um, across the world that, uh, you know, these vaccines will be uh, tried and tested, peer reviewed, etc. They will be safe to take and we can get back to, to normal uh, as fast as we can. Uh, great. Thanks, Parikh. Uh, two, two linked but very important questions. Uh, yeah, getting back to, to, to life as we know it uh, 
yeah, I, you you can't imagine how much I want that for both professional and personal reasons. So I, I can see my family. Uh, the uh, I think uh, in this uh, we need to add vaccines to our existing toolkit. I, I would you know we need to be very careful here that we do, we don't have a, a belief. Oh, we have the vaccines coming down the road, so we'll just wait for them and we'll finish this. It, vaccines in, by themselves do not equal zero COVID. I believe what can equal zero COVID is that we add vaccines to our continued vigilance on physical distancing and mask wearing and, and, and other things. Can an addition of vaccines with that vigilance by individuals and communities result in not having lockdowns? I believe so. Lockdowns are essentially a failure of control. Vaccine is a massive tool for control. If we add vaccines to our continued vigilance as a society, then I think we can get to control that does not involve highly disruptive lockdowns, because that's what's really affecting people, is the, 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 the restrictive measures that shut down society, uh, people lose access to education, lose access to healthcare, lose access to their social networks, and all of the trauma, uh, mental health and otherwise, that comes with that dislocation in our society. Uh, and everything is dislocated by COVID, uh, I believe vaccines can solve that dislocation. Will vaccines result in an absolute zero in COVID? That remains to be seen in terms of whether we can eradicate or eliminate this virus. We can certainly achieve very high levels of control that result in, as you say, getting back to life as we know it. Uh, for that to happen, we have to first vaccinate those frontline workers and vulnerable people. So number one, we reduce the impact of this virus in terms of death and pressure on our system. And it will, everyone won't be vaccinated in the first in the first round of this. It will more likely be those priority workers and priority populations. And it will take time for the vaccine then to roll out to the general population. And because of that, that vigilance, that continued vigilance is going to be required. Um, the, I think we should take a moment, you know, we always have to be, uh, and you're right, it can take five, 10, and sometimes more years to develop vaccines. Very often that's down to funding, it's down to interest, it's down to commitment to doing that. I think the one thing, if we go back, I think February 4th, uh, four days after we declared the global public health emergency, WHO had its first meeting uh, of the global research community to establish a research and development roadmap. For three years before that, we ran the research and development blueprint uh, with all of the researchers around the world in which we uh, laid out the nine diseases we thought were most likely to cause a problem, one of which was coronavirus and disease X as the number 10. As part of that process with industry and with scientists, we had developed what uh, are known in the technical terms as the target product profiles. We had already defined the profiles for the diagnostics, for the therapeutics, and for the vaccines we were going to need. We were already putting together the blueprints for what we thought was going to be needed. We had already looked at the landscape of technology that was out there. We had already looked at the platforms that might be available to develop vaccines quickly. The R&D roadmap in February concretized that into a roadmap, into a plan. Uh, and that was what stimulated the companies and the researchers out there to get out there and start doing coordinated research and development, both uh, public-private partnerships, government partnerships, international partnerships to do that. Uh, and that then culminated with the establishment of the ACT Accelerator or the COVAX initiative in April, where uh, the Director General, Dr. Tedros, pulled together all of those big agencies uh, like the Global Fund and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and the Wellcome Trust 
and UNICEF and so many other agencies who've come together to pool our knowledge, pool our buying power to create a COVAX initiative that allows us to cover uh, potentially vaccines for 90% for of the world's population if we get the appropriate funding. And we should celebrate science here. We have never developed uh, so many vaccine solutions so quickly in the history of this planet. And that does not mean that it's been done quickly with the with the with the, with ignoring safety. All of the all of the proper uh, hurdles have been jumped in terms of safety and efficacy and the trials. It's just that the processes have been speeded up to take out the inefficiencies, the administrative inefficiencies, the financial gaps, the consultation gaps, the convening gaps, the regulatory gaps. We've tried to do is compress the timelines by taking out the things we don't need, which is inefficiency and lack of money and the things that usually prevent vaccines getting developed and try to make the process as efficient and as collaborative and as contributory as possible. And now we have three products with 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 high levels of uh, efficacy from from the first trials. Uh, and obviously we have other products in the pipeline. There's over 250 vaccine candidates out there somewhere in the system. We've got 50 in clinical trials. We've got uh, nine more in phase three trials uh, in addition to the three that have proven efficacy. We have real tools now potentially at our disposal. But as we've said here in WHO over the last number of weeks, uh, this is like reaching base camp uh, at Mount Everest. We've got the base camp. We've now got to climb the mountain. And that mountain is going to be completing those studies, ensuring the full safety and efficacy of the vaccine, generating demand in our populations, and dealing with uh, with disinformation around vaccines and ensuring that the logistics and the vaccination programs are in place to deliver this vaccine to everybody who needs it. Those may sound, I actually, uh, I'm, I'm more concerned about those barriers than I necessarily was about the scientific barriers. But, you know, science solidarity has delivered the solutions. We now need to deliver those solutions to the people that we serve. I believe that we can, and I believe that we will do that with full respect to the safety issues that everyone uh, is concerned about. And we should have an open dialogue on that. And we, we we need to be very careful here. I do not want this to become a polemic, us and them vaccinating vaccinators and anti-vaccinators and all. We need a dialogue. The government need to lay out the issues. Governments need to lay out the issues to populations, be, be radically um, transparent on the studies and on the data uh, uh, and radically transparent about their plans to, to deliver this vaccine. I believe if we do that, we will have high demand for the vaccine. And if we do it right, I think we can probably get back to life as we know it, or as we knew it. Okay, thanks, Dr. Ryan. Just to let you know, I know our time with you is, is coming short, um, and we have about four more questions to get in, so just to let you know where we're at with the, with the questions. Um, Orla Ryan from the journal.ie. Orla? Hello, can you hear me? Yes, hi Orla. Hi, hello Dr. Ryan and congratulations. Um, it's Orla Ryan here from The Journal. Looking back at the past nine months, do you believe that misinformation online has hampered efforts to fight COVID-19? And you've touched on it a little bit there in relation to vaccines, but obviously we've had some positive news in the last few weeks in relation to vaccines, but are you concerned about the impact misinformation could have on vaccine uptake when it is available? Obviously, a large percentage of the population would need to get the vaccine in order for it to be effective, and misinformation could have a negative impact on that. Uh, thanks, Orla. Uh, another great question. Um, 
you're right. I mean, misinformation and disinformation has been a, a huge feature of, of this pandemic right the way through, not just about vaccines. Uh, and it has been very difficult uh, to deal with, um, creating unhelpful and unnecessary and frankly useless binary discussions, polemics and, uh, you know, activists on each side of every argument. Uh, and uh, it's been difficult for, for science uh, to, to, to have its voice. But um, I'm a great believer that, you know, we've again fought hard for open societies in which everyone has their voice, whether you want to hear what they're saying or not is another issue. Uh, and we need to be very careful not to target the messengers or necessarily target the message that they're giving. I think for me, the best vaccine against misinformation and disinformation is good information, fast information, credible information, information that you can act on. If we, we need to get better in the public health community and in government at communicating quickly, effectively, uh, and credibly with our populations. And that's the challenge. The challenge is not to go after the, the people who we think are communicating in a bad way. I don't think that helps. Uh, it just extends a, an argument that's, that probably doesn't get us anywhere. Uh, we have to win hearts and minds. Um, I think, uh, I can't remember uh, who said it. I, th I think it may have been Abraham Lincoln said it, the best way to destroy my enemies is to make them my friends. <laughs> and, uh, and I think that's what we need to do uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a proper uh, democratic society. Uh, so, so we do need that dialogue. We've worked hard with so many companies. We have a, a process here. Uh, we've invented a, a whole new science of infodemiology because uh, to, to balance our epidemiology that you've all heard about, because we are dealing with an infodemic. And the infodemic, in a sense, is a tsunami of information. And in fact, it's not all disinformation and misinformation. Some of the we have a tsunami of good information as well. And the problem people have is working out which bits of this do I listen to? People are having a problem selecting what they should listen to, uh, and even amongst the good information. So I do think we have a, a job with media, with communicators, with civil society, with non-governmental organizations to find ways to generate the platforms for dialogue. Um, and our, we have an EpiWin platform, which is our information network for epidemics. We have engaged with hundreds of thousands of people all over the world, trade unions, uh, faith movements, youth movements, and others. An interesting one, for example, we've just been working on is um, we created a design lab for uh, communication with youth, but the design lab was not staffed by our staff, it was staffed by young people. And those young people are the ones who've been developing our messaging for youth because uh, we need youth to speak to youth. What better way is to bring the youth into your design lab so they're actually an active participant in designing the messages and the communications uh, that we want to get out to young people. So I do think we need to maybe step away from our previous conceptions of what effective communications is. Uh, and we have to really, instead of um, decrying and regretting the move we've made on, into the online world and, and expressing our frustrations and regret and and difficulties, I think we need to embrace it and we need to move forward and we just need to get better at using the platforms that are there to communicate more effectively with people. And it couldn't be more important than in the case of vaccination. It will be a tragedy, a true tragedy, if we end up with effective, uh, with efficacious vaccines that are available, 
but that people don't want to take them. That would be a tragedy in the end. And we have to invest a lot in making sure that that does not happen. Thank you, Orla. Thank you. Thank you, Orla. Thank you, Dr. Ryan. Um, Aoife Walsh, Sunday World. Hi, Dr. Ryan, and congratulations on your award. And you said last month that European governments are well behind in the fight against COVID-19. And I was just wondering, in the context of Ireland, as we're about to exit a second lockdown and approaching a busy Christmas period, where do you think we stand now in eradicating this virus completely from our society? Um, no, I, 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 you're right. I'm correctly quoted. Uh, and we were um, in Europe well behind. I think Europe has been catching up. I think our problem in general around the world is we spend more time catching up on this virus than we do on, on the virus catching up on us. So we have to get into a much more dominant position regarding the virus itself. Up to now, the virus has been controlling us. We haven't been necessarily controlling the virus. Uh, and I think we do have more. Everyone has more work to do in that regard. Uh, and again, I think I said it in a previous comment there. Uh, the, the Ireland, actually, I think was the first country in the European environment to turn this latest wave of disease around. And again, deserves huge, uh, huge credit for that. But we also then need to follow through. As I've said previously, we need to make sure that not it's not just only the community that have to deal with this and suffer, that our public health architecture needs to be significantly strengthened, our ability to do strategic testing, the ability to uh, quarantine contacts, uh, and our ability to fundamentally understand uh, the clusters and what's driving amplifications in the context of a country like Ireland. A better understanding of that, more targeted control measures that don't involve lockdowns uh, would obviously be the best way forward. Get the disease low, keep it low, plan for vaccination, do it well, uh, and we get back to life as we know it. Uh, that sounds awful easy to say. That is very hard to achieve. Uh, and I, you know, I would... Uh, uh, you know, like to commend not, not only the community in Ireland, but you've have you've had some great public health leadership in Ireland uh, as well, uh, and there are people there, and they've give they've given their all as well. None of us are perfect, and none of us get it right all the time. But you've had some great leadership in 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 the likes of uh, uh, of Tony Hulan and Roland Lynn and and, and others there uh, in the government and beyond in Enfet who are doing their level best. And I know there are frustrations, as there are frustrations with us in Geneva. Uh, but uh, we need to support them in, in what they're doing, but also hold everyone, them and us here in Geneva, to account for, for, for the decisions we make. Great. Thank you, Dr. Ryan. And two more questions, if you if you will. Um, David Lynch from the Medical Independent. Hello, Dr. Ryan. Um, David Lynch from the Medical Independent here. Um, I just want to ask a question about um, burnout amongst doctors. Um, obviously, that was an issue pre-pandemic and maybe it's got worse during a pandemic. I just, what's your thoughts on that? And also your, have you any kind of personal experience with, with yourself and amongst your colleagues there with that issue? And just one quick thing about vaccines. Um, how would you rate um, uh, pharma's support for the COVID technology access pool set up at the WHO? How, how important do you think that pool is? And could the Irish government or the EU do more to support it? Thank you. Uh, great. Uh, thanks. Uh, yeah, first of all, burnout, burnout is an issue in every level of society uh, right now, but certainly amongst health workers. I, I wouldn't limit that to doctors. I mean, they, you know, in if you look at the bulk of the frontline workers in those intensive care units, uh, they're nurses uh, and physios and occupational therapists and hygienists and cleaners and uh, administrators and others. Uh, that whole system 
uh, is suffering uh, from burnout. We should also celebrate their courage uh, and their bravery over the last 10 months and sticking with this and getting getting that job done. They've saved countless lives in, in, in their sacrifice. But burnout is an issue and burnout is is a factor of 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 the pressure that the system comes under and we do know the patient outcomes are worse when we have overcrowded facilities when we have less time per patient with the clinical team where the clinical team are tired or don't feel protected or are burnt out so it's not just an issue of addressing the needs of those brave workers but actually a bottom line issue we have reduced mortality in this situation less older people are dying of those who get sick because over the summer all around the world in many places the number of cases dropped therefore the number of very sick cases dropped therefore the intensive care units had much more time to provide intensive care but if you overwhelm an intensive care unit the care no longer becomes intensive uh, the care becomes you know basically dividing up your time as best you can between too many patients that is not good for the patient's outcome, and that is certainly not good for the mental and physical health of that team. So everything possible needs to be done to give those teams the time off they need. Give them the protective gear, give them the training, give them the resources, and give them the extra staff that they need. That's hard to do because you can't magic up emergency room staff and intensive care staff and specialized clinical staff overnight. You, you can't click your fingers and create that workforce. So you have to be very uh, clever in how you do it. With regard to uh, CTAP and, and those other things, yes, we're always looking more for more support for COVAX, for the ACT Accelerator and for the, the technology pool. Uh, and the more and more we can recognize that in situations like this globally, uh, there are certain things that are global goods. They are global public health goods. And we do need to have the exchange of intellectual property and other things that allows the rapid production and uh, innovation that's needed. So uh, I think there's been great examples. I think we've seen huge progress, but uh, I, I think we could definitely see more support to the CTAP initiative uh, now and, and going forward. Thank you, Dr. Ryan. Um, and finally, uh, Cahal Malani from the Sligo Champion. Thank you. Uh, good morning, Dr. Ryan. Congratulations on your award and thanks for your time this morning. Just wanted to return to your roots on the Sligo-Mayo border in Balahi. Um, what are your memories of growing up there? What are your memories of playing football with Curry, and how often do you get to keep in touch with home? <laughs> I uh, yeah, I, I'm uh, my mum is in Balahi, but I lived in 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 Curry for for most of my my young life, and but also in Charleston on, on the other side, played my my football with Curry. I'm very connected. Uh, in fact, my greatest pleasure uh, every week is to speak to you know two guys that I've been friends with since I was five years old. Uh, and every Sunday or every Saturday, we speak for an hour and a half uh, by by Zoom. And I can decompress from from all of this stuff uh, and talk about uh, the junior and the intermediate championship and how the girls did last week and how the under 14s did. Uh, uh, Finton Henry and Johnny Stenson are the two guys and uh, one lives in Kerry, one lives in Dublin and we're connected globally. So I'm very, still very connected to to, to my community, both in Kerry and, and, and in Charleston and on both sides of the border. And it's really important because for me, working internationally and as many of the Irish diaspora will tell you, uh, that connection to home and that connection to your tribe uh, is really important because there are times when you are dislocated, uh, you can lose hope, 
you know, there's a lot of pressure in a, in a role like this, like there is for many others. And and uh, the affirmation you need is not people telling you you're doing a great job. It's not that. It's it's connecting with family, connecting with your parish, uh, and understanding where you come from. And no matter what happens. Uh, they're always there for you and they're always with you. There's no judgment there. They're not there assessing whether you're a good person or a bad person or a great scientist or a poor scientist or a great communicator or a poor communicator. They're just there. Uh, and uh, I'm, uh, I'm very proud of, of my roots. I, uh, I, I look forward to when the time comes to being able to go home and have a pint in Tom Howley's bar. Uh, and uh, and uh, to 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 go to the to the GA matches as I've often done when I do get get home, uh, it's a pilgrimage for me to to try and find the time to go and watch uh, Curry play. And I know they've been promoted from the intermediates to the seniors next year. So watch out the rest of you. Thank you, Dr. Ryan. Um, and look, we look forward to obviously having you home as well. I think you can see from the turnout today and the questions that there's a great appetite in hearing from you here at home in Ireland. We really thank you for your time today. Hands are up. People want to ask you more questions, but we appreciate that, that our time with you is up for now. Um, Dr. Ryan, thank you again for your time. Thank you, everybody, for, for joining us and for your questions and for your patience with us today. And uh, we hope to, to um, have you join us in the virtual ceremony this afternoon.